Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 78, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And my word, have we got a big show for you this week. Now, if you did listen to last week's podcast, we had the legendary Howard Scott Warshaw on the show. And we're going to continue the interview that we started with him last week. Now, if you missed last week's show, a few of the things we covered in there, we're talking about Yar's Revenge. Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know... And the early days of Atari, which were pretty wild and crazy by the sounds of it. And I love the the bit in the interview that we got up to where he was hanging out with Steven Spielberg, designing the Raiders of the Lost Ark game, and he calls Steven Spielberg an alien. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's quite a good uh, quote as well that was in all the newspapers at the time and magazines. Now, because this guy is such a legend, um, we had to run this interview in two parts. Now, we obviously left it at that point last week. Obviously, Steven Spielberg wasn't that offended because he let him do the game to his next big movie that was the legendary E.T., famously called the worst video game ever. Wasn't Howard kind of blamed for the whole video game crash, the the destruction of a giant industry of millions of pounds with one game? Because you think before then, you know, he did have a very good reputation with stuff like Yars Revenge and Raiders and stuff like that. And like you said, this game came out. I think, you know, maybe it was a scapegoat. Mm. He did get blamed, I mean, for a guy, you know, for a single guy to get blamed for the entire destruction of the industry must have weighed quite heavily on his shoulders, you'd imagine. Definitely, and we kind of talk about that, but we also talk about, you know, Atari Game Over and afterwards when they uncovered the games in the dirt in the uh, landfill. And also, if he could go back in time, what would he do differently if he could do E.T. on the Atari 2600 all over again. So this week, part two of our interview with Howard Scott Warshaw is going to focus on E.T. on the Atari 2600. Does it deserve that title of the worst video game of all time? He's coming up in around 20 minutes from now. Now, before we get into this week's show, we want to say a massive thank you to the very kind people who let us keep doing this show week in, week out. And that is those of you who find it in your hearts to make a donation into the Retro Hour Hall of Fame and keep us running this show. Now, this week, thanks so much for your donation, Frederick Burbage, Jason Landridge, Brett Pritchard, Jonathan Parry, and Chris Baker, who've all made donations to the running of the Retro Hour podcast this week. And you can do the same if, you know, it doesn't have to be a load of money. We think of this as a tip jar. So anything you put into there will help us, you know, pay for the server costs, studio time, anything that we need to do to keep the show going and, you know, let us do the show for you week in, week out because, you know, we've got to be the only weekly retro gaming podcast in the world. Yeah, yeah, we we do actually pump them out every week. I'm surprised that we've not missed one, Dan. <laughs> it's amazing. Have we? I, I can't remember. Yeah, well, I wouldn't remember. We've been working that hard, Ravi. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you would like to make a little donation into the tip jar, you'll find a PayPal link at theretrohour.com or you can donate via Bitcoin as well. Well, not only do we take, we also give to you guys. So we have another competition, and this is a fantastic competition. It's weekend passes to play Expo Blackpool. Now, you know, for retro gaming fans, there are certain events on the calendar every year that we look forward to. And I think, you know, a boys weekend in Blackpool is the highlight of the year for me. Oh, yeah. And, you know, these play Expo events, absolutely gigantic, right? I can't believe the amount of arcades and the amount of games that are there. And this is a full weekend pass. So basically, you have to be available if you're entering this competition next weekend. And that's on the 15th and 16th in Blackpool. Now, a few of the things that are on there, I mean, you know, we've been for the last two years now. And there are loads of, you know, free play arcades. 
it's just a good excuse to get together with other retro heads and other gaming fans. And there's going to be, you know, David Pleasance from Commodore is going to be there doing a Yeah, we'll a be down there doing a, a little panel with him. We are. Stuff. Big Boy Barry from uh, Games World is going to be <laughs> yeah. there. Jim Bagley is going to be showing the uh, ZX Spectrum next and to talk all about that. Uh, and also there's going to be an attempt to break the world record on Pac-Man by John Studley, who currently owns the record. Oh, and... Uh... System free will be there as well. Yeah, so it's going to be an amazing weekend. If you want to come along to this, uh, you know, hang out with us guys as well. Come and say hello. You know, drinks are on Ravi all weekend, I imagine. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not in the terms and conditions, yeah. is it? So if you do want to come along, like Ravi said, you've got to be available to come next weekend uh, to Blackpool on the 15th and 16th. And we have got a pair of weekend passes to give away to play Explo in Blackpool. Now, all you've got to do is head to our website, and leave your details on the form that you'll find on the front page of theretrohour.com. Just put your email address in there, fill in the little form. The terms and conditions can be found on there as well. Now, obviously, this is coming up very soon. So we are going to close this competition at midnight this coming Wednesday, the 12th of July. And then next morning, we'll pick a winner at random. Keep an eye on your email box because you'll be quick about this. Yeah. Make sure you've got the weekend off work and you can come. And uh, we'll send you some e-tickets out as well. So, yeah, you don't so have to worry about if you can't make it on the 15th or 16th, don't enter. But there is no question on this one. Just yeah. enter and we will pick someone at random, randomly generated. Boom. You get the tickets. Go party. Yeah, and bring your shorts. It's going to be sunny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right then, before we get into our interview, part two with Howard Scott Warshaw, this Crash Bandicoot game has been everywhere, hasn't it? The HD upgrade? Oh, yeah. It looks really, really good, actually. And there's, there's some quite interesting stuff that's coming out of it. You know, a lot of people uh, are kind of tweeting about how hard it is. And they're saying, oh, you know, I'm kind of getting stuck on this bit. I've had to repeat this bit 15 times. I remember it was hard, wasn't it, Dan? The original. <laughs> You know what's cool, though, is I looked the other day and this is number two in the gaming chart. You know, for like a retro reissue, that is massive, isn't it? Oh, giant. You know, and Crash was like, he kind of became the unofficial PlayStation mascot at the beginning, didn't he? Because they didn't really have anything. Yeah, and before then, before Lara. Yeah, yeah, before Lara, Crash was the man. And like you said, I've been seeing this everywhere as well. And a lot of people are saying, you know, here's <laughs> a headline here on uh, a news site that we found. Gamers are having their childhood ruined by crazy hard PS4 Crash Bandicoot. Now, there are some theories as to why people are struggling a bit with this. Now, I think it could be one of two things. Do you find this as well, though, if you haven't played, you know, a video game in like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and you pick it up again, obviously you're out of practice with it. The level of focus re required on these older games is much more intense than you have now. You know, you have like auto lock and, and stuff like this. Platformers, my God, they are really hard and Crash was your kind of 3D platformer, wasn't it? So it's always been tough. I remember being with my cousin, and we used to play Crash a lot. And there was this one level on uh, Crash Bandicoot 1, hmm. and I think it took us two weeks. <laughs> you know? Did you leave your PlayStation on? Yeah, just yeah. Uh, kept, kept going for it, you know. But again, I mean, you think back to those days as well. We are at school, you didn't have jobs and all that, so you could dedicate... All night, I mean, my brother had you know, Crash Bandicoot on his PlayStation, and we would like sit up till four in the morning playing it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, I just remember it was really tricky. But there was also a lot of people saying that, oh, it might be because they're using the Unity engine and the edges of the boxes are kind of rounded. Well, one guy on Reddit has posted out, um, you know, a reason why he thinks people are having trouble. And he reckons the jumping is different in the updated Crash Bandicoot game. And he reckons that the, the shape of his feet are slightly different. 
and it makes sliding and falling off things easier. And someone has actually backed this up and he's posted a comparison of the original and the new version side by side. Ah, because I always remember he had those giant big trainers, didn't he? Yeah, a bit like... Uh, we all had like pointy feet back then, didn't they? Like Sonic yeah, the Hedgehog yeah. and stuff like that. So I suppose technically it was meant to make jumping in that easier, but it looks like there have been some changes. Maybe not for the worse. I mean, it's just, you know, a different way of playing, isn't it? So Yeah. If you have been kicking yourself that you're not as good as you used to be, there's something to make you, you know, feel a little bit comforted, I think. There, yeah, hopefully. at least there's other people <laughs> struggling out there. I've been playing the new Micro Machines. Any good? Oh, so good, so good. Again, I've been seeing mixed reviews about that. You know, some people saying it's awful. I've really enjoyed it. What was it for, a PC? Uh, I've got it on PS4. Okay. Yeah, I think okay. it's, it's I'll have Xbox to come around well. and have a play. It, it was only like 25 quid as well. Oh, that's so, good. Yeah, budget release. I mean, I'll give you a more in-depth review when I played it a bit longer than like three courses like I did at the weekend, <laughs> yeah. but so far, loving it. And it's just great to see there are so many retro reissues, you know. Wipeout, I haven't got my hands on the new Wipeout game yet, but I probably will in the next couple of weeks. But it's Yeah, it's, it's, it's really kind of getting high up there in the charts and it's all positive news. You know someone else who's all over the place at the moment? Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You can't you can't escape him at the moment, can you? No, you can't escape the Rock. And uh, the Rock is uh, just released a new photo of himself on the set of a new game movie. Right. And can you believe it? It's Rampage. This is an interesting choice. <laughs> yeah, totally. I used to play Rampage on my Amstrad, and uh, you were mainly like gorillas and kind of Godzillas and climbing up the side of buildings and smashing the hell out of them. I remember that. You know, we've talked before on the show about the fact that video game movies are usually dreadful. Mm. <laughs> what is kind of the premise of this, and what, what is The Rock going to be doing? Well, um, Mr. Johnson has released some of the plot details, and I'm, I'm going to read you now okay. <laughs> the plot details, and it sounds pretty crazy. He said, he's the head of an anti-poaching unit in Rwanda, and his best friend is a rare albino gorilla named George. <laughs> Very bad people infect George and with an alligator and wolf serum, and all three of these animals grow at an unprecedented rate, their size and speed, agility, and they kind of get really violent, and their, their, their violence goes off the charts. Uh, they go on a deadly rampage or destroy the world. George not happy, me not happy. <laughs> when animals like you, they lick you. I, this is very odd. Dude, what, what were these people smoking when they <laughs> yeah. came up with this? Plot? When they don't like you, they kill you. I will hunt down bad people who did this to my best friend, and when I find them, I will not lick them. I'm going to start fading you down in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Rampage, I mean, when did that originally come out? That must have been, like, mid-'80s. Oh, yeah, I think it was very early on, wasn't it? I know. I remember it was on the Commodore 64. It's been, like, ported up to anything like the 86. other 86, the original. So, legendary game, but... Quite interesting they've decided to do a movie like, you know, I think it was more than a decade since the last game, apparently. Why now? It's really odd because there's also, you know, people are saying there's going to be Tetris the movie. Yeah. How's, how's this going to work? <laughs> and You know, these board meetings, they're kind of like, right, we're going to do a Rampage the movie. It's, it seems like they're really picking odd titles, you know. Maybe something like Road Rash the movie would work. Yeah. Or, you know... SimCity the movie, or, but Rampage, I don't I think it does prove that, you know, The Rock will pretty much say yes to any movie screen. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll look, look out for that with bated breath. You never know, it might, might be good. Yeah, it might be good. Uh, that, uh, recent ones I've seen haven't been very good, like uh, Pixels and stuff like that. But Did you watch Baywatch with The Rock? No, <laughs> I've no. avoided that one. I've heard it's actually all right. Okay. Yeah, well. a friend of mine saw it and he said he went in. I think it's because you go in expecting it to be awful. Yeah. <laughs> so then you're pleasantly surprised. I think it was like, you know, when they did 22 Jump Street? Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of like, you know, 
Wasn't wasn't awful, yeah. It didn't take itself too seriously. It knew that it was poking a bit of fun at the original, so... Well, my girlfriend fancies a rock, so I can't get away with it. You're going then anyway, aren't you? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I can't compete with those guns. <laughs> now, this is quite an interesting uh, franchise from the past that has made a return. Did you ever play School Days? I didn't, but the kind of footage that I've seen of it, it looks fascinating. It's, it looks like one of those kind of classic Spectrum games. All kind of Grange Hilly, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was kind of that era. It came out in 1984. It was on the Spectrum and the Commodore 64. I mean, the idea was that you played a schoolboy. His name was Eric, and he had to steal his report card, because he got a bad report card, uh, from the school staff room. Okay. So to do that, he had to do various things and avoid like the headmaster and the other teachers and the other pupils and stuff like that. And if he got caught, essentially, you know... You would get, you know, have to go and do lines on the blackboard, that kind of thing. So, you know, for kids at the time, it was essentially all the stuff you'd love to do at school, but you couldn't. So you kind of spend your day behaving at school and then go home on your specky and just incredibly naughty. <laughs> yeah, just let rip all the yeah. stuff you've dreamed about in the day. But now it's got a new lease of life. School Days has been re-released on Android and iOS. Oh, nice. Well, this looks like they've kind of fully redone all of the graphics. And they've made it a lot clearer because uh, school days, they fit a lot on the screen yeah. at the same time, you know. And the, the graphics in it kind of remind me a little bit of like, uh, you know, like the Sims kind of games. It looks a bit like that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of got that nice look. Or Sim Tower, if yeah. you ever played that, where Something it's like in that. like little blocks. So yeah. it looks really good. And it's, uh, you know, just having a classic game like that been re-released. And what, what I've heard as well, apparently the reviews of it are really good. People are saying it's a great update. And if you went back to like the days you used to run home from school, and uh, play it on your Commodore 64. Now you could play it on the bus on the way to school. I, lo- I love the name as well. Old uh, School Days Reschooled. There you go. So if you want to get reschooled, <laughs> it is available now, and we'll put the link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. That's some interesting Apple II news. Yeah, so we've got this New York-based artist from Indonesia, and he's kind of been playing with old Apple IIs, and he loves the technology behind them, so he's been recreating... Uh, the Star Wars trailer, actually. On an Apple II? On an Apple II, yeah. Now, we're not even going to attempt to say this guy's full name because we'll get it wrong, but his nickname is Pino. Yeah, and... Uh, like the wine. <laughs> and he's uh, he's been using the original kind of programs to do it. So the first one he used was called Dazzle Draw, which uh, was released in 1983. Mm-hmm. And he's also been using a koala pad. If you heard of those, those were like the really early kind of sketch pad. Oh, like graphic tablets, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But one of, one of the first ones released. And, and they were quite revolutionary. I remember seeing those on um, an episode of the Computer Chronicles and, you know, a lot of them use styluses and stuff, but on them you could actually, like, kind of, you know, rub them with your fingers, like pastel kind of effects and stuff. Yeah, and this isn't the first time that he's done it as well. So he's, he's tried to do the trailer for Star Wars A New Hope, um, but he got loads of data errors because they got fungus on the discs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. Yes, but this is amazing. Like, just watch it and you kind of have most of the scenes from The Last Jedi. You know, the LucasArts logo, of course, looks fantastic in the uh, you know green screen of the Apple II. And that kind of green glow really just looks amazing. So I recommend anyone checks this out. Yeah, he's done su- such an impressive job. Like you said, it is all green screen, you know, green monochrome. And the animation's pretty fluid on it as well. I didn't even think the Apple II was kind of, you know, powerful no, enough to do yeah, this. Yeah, it's, it's really impressive. 
we didn't, you know, I didn't see all that much over this side of the pond, but the more I see about it, the more interested I am in this machine. Yeah, and the more more kind of modern stuff that's done on it, I think, wow, this machine's really got some power. I think that's when you know, isn't it, when people are still doing stuff that blow your mind on machines 30 years later, it's like, it had a lot of potential, didn't it? Yeah. Now, let's talk about modern games for a minute before we get into our uh, interview with Howard Scott Warshaw and talk about E.T. An interesting list here on The Guardian, talking about the most annoying things about modern gaming. Gaming's biggest irritations explained. Now, they start this article with the fact that gaming's come on quite a long way since the days of cassette tape loading and cover-mounted floppy disks on magazines. Now we've got massive 3D worlds and games are like, you know, 25 gigabytes in size and beyond. And actually, that's one of the things they criticise games for. They reckon that developers have got a bit lazy. They're also talking about stuff like season passes as well, uh, which was very controversial and kind of paid content. I remember I got, uh, what is it, Battlefield 1. That's what I got. And uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to play on this level. Update required. Uh, You need to buy this level of membership. I want to play on this. And I, I was just on the simple level... Uh, getting killed by everyone who had upgraded weapons and all of this stuff. And it really changes the balance in a game, stuff like that. You know, pay to win. Yeah. That's that's what really annoys me. The thing about it is as well, I mean, what, what used to really irritate me is when you got DLC, but actually the code was already on the disc and you're essentially just paying to unlock it. <laughs> so yeah. It's like, you know, you think I've already just paid for this in the shop, it feels a little bit wrong. But again, I mean, like any of these kind of things, they wouldn't do it if people didn't pay for it. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of it's weird because it's like when you were a kid, you'd go and get your game and then you'd take it home and you'd cane it for two weeks, you know, as yeah. soon as you got it. So you knew everything about it and then talk to your mates about it at school. But now you could take your ho- game home, spend two hours or all night downloading the update, go online, the server crashes, you can't play it for a week. You know, GTA, when that came out and all the servers crashed, that was just awful. By then you don't want to play it, you're like, oh, not in the mood now. Yeah. Well, here's another one. Day one patches. Oh, God. God, yeah, the Wii U. Um, I recently had my Wii U set up and the the, the patching music is so annoying. <laughs> it, yeah, it just goes on for hours. It's uh, awful. Well, they're saying that, you know, Halo Master Chief Collection, I remember that, there was like a 20 gigabyte day one patch oh on that God. game. Quite interesting that we're talking about this when we've got Howard Scott Warshaw in at a moment because he had like, what, six weeks to make E.T.? Yeah, yeah. Whereas these days, you put it out and you patch it when it's released. If, if, if Howard could have done a patch, <laughs> then we wouldn't be doing this interview. <laughs> but now, I mean, you know, you can put a game out. If you miss your deadline, I mean, that's money. You know, they can lose millions by not hitting the deadlines. Yeah. It needs to go in the shops. Everything's all ready for it. But now often, I imagine a lot of the time, they'll put it out if there's a problem with it. Just do a day one patch, you sorted. And I can imagine stuff like server crashes. It's probably because they can't test that load of people. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to judge the popularity of a game. But also, I think it's it's like life in a game. If you have a game that's online and multiplayer and all relies on that and that service gets turned off, mm-hmm. you're not going to get any more gameplay out of that. So it's, yeah, it's really tricky. I think the older ones last a lot longer, but then you don't have all the extra cool things. Number four on the list, pre-orders. Do you pre-order games? No. No, I don't think I've ever pre-ordered a game. Neither have I. No. I've never had a problem getting a game, really. No, I've, I've not wanted anything that bad. The only one I've wanted is GTA, and that's always been available <laughs> everywhere. So. The only one I really did was Zelda, you know, on the Switch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, I looked everywhere. Like, there was actually more Switches than there was copies of Zelda out there. It was oh, like... actually, I bought the Wii U copy 
of Zelda because I knew they were printing a small amount of it and they'll be worth more. Yeah. And my point was proven when I went into game the other day and they were selling Wii U Zelda for 60 quid. And more, all the other Wii U games are smaller <laughs> and, I bet that was and used. cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there are some annoyances about gaming these days and things that were better back in the day, I think. But, you know, it's like any platform, isn't it? And any, any media, the more it develops... They wouldn't do these things if we didn't live with it and put up with it. So Yeah, and you know, they're all there because you get kind of more features and a different gaming experience. That said, though, there is something quite nice about just putting your Mega Drive on and putting Sonic 2 cartridge in, just playing it. Yeah, and it being the same every time. <laughs> Not having to wait two hours for an update. <laughs> oh, God, it's uh, I play League of Legends or online games and they're changing every month or something. It's just like, how do I play this, this game? You game? have to relearn it, yeah. <laughs> That's why we do a retro podcast, right? We like to think, keep things simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of getting old school then, are you ready for Howard Scott Warshaw talking about the worst video game ever? Oh, totally. This is going to be a fantastic interview, and I'm so pleased that we could actually get it done and contribute to Howard's book as well. Yeah, well, Howard is writing a book. I mean, you'll find out more details on that at the end of this week's interview. Last week, we were chatting to him in his office between appointments. This week, he's actually in his car driving across California. Yeah, so if you're kind of hearing a few indicators and stuff like that, then uh, don't worry, it's not yours going crazy. Yeah, but just enjoy a little tour across America with uh, with Howard, reminiscing about yeah, the glory a little days. cruise. <laughs> and of course, next weekend, we're going to be there at Play Expo in Blackpool. If you want to join us as well, you've got till Wednesday to enter our competition. All you've got to do is head online to our website, fill in your details at theretrohour.com. You've got until Wednesday evening, the 12th of July at midnight, and then we'll select someone at random who will win a pair of weekend passes on Thursday morning and uh, do come and say hello if you win yeah come on the Saturday as well because Sunday we're going to be mega hungover a <laughs> <laughs> little pre-warning yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> alright guys well thank you so much for checking out this week's show and now here he is then the story of the worst game ever Howard Scott Warshaw part 2 on the Retro Hour podcast and we'll see you next week ciao You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome back our very special guest for part two of our interview with the legendary Howard Scott Warshaw. Thank you for coming back on, Howard. Well, it's great to be here once again. There's never too much interview here, that's for sure. <laughs> well, last week, let's pick up from the moment when obviously you'd released Raiders of the Lost Ark, you were hanging out with Steven Spielberg, and then you started working on what became your most famous game ever, E.T. on the Atari 2600. How did you get involved in that project? Well, the way I first got involved with E.T. was uh, I had just finished Raiders and was sort of catching my breath. And uh, I got a call uh, at my desk one day. It, uh, I answered the phone and someone said, would you please hold for Ray Kazar, who was the CEO of Atari at the time. So I thought, well, he signs my check. Sure, I'll hold. <laughs> and he comes on the phone. It was July 27th, the Tuesday, late in the afternoon. And Ray Kazar comes on the phone. He goes, Howard, we just finished getting the rights for E.T. We need you to do the game by September 1st. He goes, can you do it? And I said, absolutely I can. And so when he heard that, he said, okay, great. want you to be the, uh, go to San Jose Airport, the executive terminal, on Thursday morning. There'll be a Learjet waiting for you to take you down to Burbank to see Spielberg and present the design. So I had 
I had 36 hours, basically, to create the design for the game and then uh, almost five weeks to do it. So that was my introduction to the game. Was it hard because there wasn't a kind of established arcade game of E.T. before? Or there wasn't a kind of, it hadn't been put into game form yet? Oh, no, no, not at all. It was hard because there was only five weeks. That's <laughs> why it was hard. I uh, was glad there wasn't anything else there. I always preferred having a, a clean slate to work with and to be able to do something original. Well, that game was very original. I mean, how did you come up with that concept? The primary thrust of the design was to create a game I could do in five weeks. Right, Doing a game in record time, to me, isn't a development challenge, it's a design challenge. Right, So if I were to design a game, you know, most games took six to eight months to do, right? So if I'm going to take a game that would be designed to take six months and try to do that in five weeks, then that's obviously going to fail. That's going to fail enormously. So instead, what I did was I tried to design a game that could be done quickly and see how well I could do that. See, ordinarily, you start off with a game concept and you take the time you need to maximize it. What I did was I have a time constraint, so I've got to figure out how much game can I get done in that time. So what I settled on was a treasure hunt concept. Because, you know, in the big picture in E.T., is that E.T. is trying to get back home and he's trying to assemble a phone and call his friends and bring him back. That's the story from E.T.'s point of view. And it's a very simple story in that regard. The story from the human's point of view is much more involved. But uh, the VCS isn't really conducive to uh, telling an emotional character-based story. It's, you know, it's better for games. <laughs> so I uh, tried to find the simplest through line to a game that would allow me to do something uh, fairly directly. Because, you know, the key thing to this whole project was getting it done. That was the most important part of it. And with a treasure hunt game, what you need is you need treasure to look for. And then you need places to hide it. So that's why all the wells show up. And then you need something that's an obstacle. You need something to keep you from making the, uh, the treasure hunt trivial. So I added the FBI agent and the scientist and gave each of them slightly different characteristics. And then you need some help along the way. And so Elliot comes in occasionally to bail you out and you play from E.T.'s perspective, which a lot of people thought was an interesting choice. I just thought it facilitated the game because that way if the character needs some magical powers, it makes more sense to have E.T. be that than Elliot or somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that was basically how the game came together. And then also I got to put it on a 3D world. I decided I'll put it on a cube, essentially, and there's, because uh, it's very simple, there's a place where the humans generate from and where you can wind up. There's a place on the other side of the world where's the, launch, where's the landing site, where E.T.'s ultimate goals are. And the rest of it is just wrapped around, and that's all the places you can hide the treasure. Well, when you went to see Spielberg then, um, how much input did he have, and what were his thoughts on your ideas? It was very interesting, because I went down there, and I laid the whole design out for him, and... And Spielberg and I, you know, got along pretty well, and he was, I uh, just finished Raiders, and we had, you know, dealt with each other a couple of times through Raiders. And when I get done with the whole thing, laying out the whole design, and Spielberg looks at it, and he goes, couldn't you do something a little more like Pac-Man? <laughs> and I thought, what? You know, one of the most innovative film creators in our time, 
wants me to do a knockoff of one of his most original movies. And I thought, that was weird. And my impulse in the moment, I have something of a sharp wit at times. <laughs> my initial impulse was to say to him, you know, Sp- Stephen, couldn't you do something a little more like the day the earth stood still? <laughs> like, but then I realized I'm talking to Steven Spielberg. I'm not going to do that. You know, like, I'm not going there. But it was just, it was weird to me that he wanted to suggest a knockoff. And I just said to him, you know, Steven, I said, ET is really kind of a breakthrough movie. And I said, I don't think we need a knockoff game for this. I said, I think what we need is something fresh and original that speaks to the, you know, the movie itself. And he went along with that, and so I was grateful for that. Then there was also the idea that really what was going on was I needed a movie that I needed a game that could be done in the time frame, and you know, to do any other kind of game that would be much more involved and have a lot more programming to it, a lot more intricacy, that could have been a tougher uh, thing to, to establish. So I didn't really make that argument to him. If he would have really pushed back on the, uh, the originality angle, I would have said, well, this is what we can do. Well, how, how kind of close was it since you'd watched the movie? Was it like, you know, a matter of weeks? Uh, I'd seen the movie a little while before. I mean, I remembered it. I have a pretty good memory particularly for movies, because I'm a huge movie fan. And the truth is, when I was doing Raiders, I speculated that E.T. would be coming up and that I might be someone they wanted to do it. I didn't go so far as to really contemplate a game design for it. So the movie was kind of fresh in my head, and I thought a lot about it. You know, the other thing is that E.T., see, Raiders, Raiders is an action movie. Right, and an action movie is uh, an easy thing to do a video game for because your action line of the game can pretty much follow the movie. But E.T. wasn't an action movie. E.T. was an emotional tone movie. Right? There's one or two action pieces in it, but not really that much. It's mostly comedy and emotional tone. That's not a great thing to base a game on. But I thought to myself, I'm going to use graphics and I'm going to try and organize it in a way so that there are characters you will identify with, and I want to bring emotional tone to it. And I really thought I would do a, a, a video game on the 2600 with an emotional sense to it, which, you know, in retrospect, when I think about it, is kind of insane. <laughs> you know, with those graphics and the way this, the, the limitations of the system, it's hard enough just to make a game on that system, let alone create emotional buy-in on any level. But, uh, that was my thinking. Well, Howard, you did manage to get the game, you know, turned around in that, you know, record time. How pleased were you with the final result then when it had to go to, to market? Uh, I was pretty pleased with the result because, as you pointed out, I finished it. <laughs> it was like, it was a done game that was debugged and it went through quality assurance and it passed. And uh, so that was it. I'm not saying it had no playability problems, but... For a five-week development, I was extremely pleased that we had pulled it off. And Spielberg came and saw the game and played it and passed it. You know, Spielberg had the final approval on the game. And he came up and, uh, now I'm not blaming him for anything here, you understand. But he was the one who put it through to production. <laughs> well, how did you feel when, it's obviously, the game got released? And it was, you know, a very good seller initially, that game, wasn't it? But obviously, I know there was a bit of a backlash by a lot of the, the press afterwards. Well, it was, and the thing is, 
you see, when people ask, you know, what was it like, you know, at what point did you think it was a bad game, it was a long time after I finished the game before there was any concept of it being a bad game. Because the game was finished at the end of August. You know, for September 1st, the game was done. So, and then it's put to manufacturing, and then it hits shelves like in late November. And in December, it's like topping all the sales charts. So it's doing very well. All the feedback on the game is fabulous so far. And it wasn't until into the next quarter, right? So it isn't until like February or March that you start to hear that, you know, there are returns, it's coming back, people are dissatisfied with it. You know, it's much later than that. So that's like, that's like six or seven months after I finished the game. So I had a half a year's worth of very positive feedback before I saw anything negative about it. You know, this was pre-internet. Right. And that's people forget nowadays what it's like to release something pre-internet. You know, nowadays people think, well, what was the, Why would you put out a bad game? You know, if you put out the game, why don't you rev it? <laughs> why don't you rev it? And people can download the updates, you know, and then it's not a problem. Well, that, the Internet didn't exist. Also, you didn't get the instant feedback that you get. Nowadays, on you release a game, people download it and you'll see the feedback on chat boards. You'll see thousands of responses or more within minutes, if not a day, right? And after several days, it's, it's a known commodity. You know, everybody's, everybody's got it already. So back then, there was no real feedback mechanism for the game. So it wasn't, it wasn't, the, the industry wasn't that sophisticated yet. And so it took a longer time for the feedback to come through. So I didn't have any inkling that there was a problem with the game, like I said, for half a year. And then it started to look bad, but things were, a lot of things were already changing at Atari that were obviously problematic at that point, right? So by the time we were hearing there were problems with ET, it was obvious that there were other kinds of problems going on with the company that were much bigger than just the ET thing. What do you think the problem was with the game from a, a player's perspective then? Okay, well, this is something I have given some thought. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you exactly what the problem with the game was. Is that it's in video games, it is okay to frustrate players, okay? In fact, it's necessary. But it is not okay to disorient players, okay? And there's a difference between frustration and disorientation, right? Frustration is when you understand what you're trying to do, but you can't quite do it, and you understand why you're not able to do it. Okay, I'm not fast enough, I'm not quick enough, I'm not clever enough. It's, you can see what the problem is, and you know you're not getting there. Disorientation is when something happens to you, and you don't know what's going on. You're just, it's just, it's hard to follow. You can't track it. Okay, so, uh, did, so in video games, if there, you have to have frustration, right? The, the reason it's pleasing to win in a video game is because you had to go through a frustration thing where you couldn't quite make it, and the winning is the payoff that you've gained some skill and you've moved forward, and, you know, it's a positive experience. There's positive feedback there. So frustration is an integral part of a game. If there's no frustration in a video game, if a video game is just you get in the game, do what you're supposed to do, and you're done, well, that's boring, right? There's no challenge. There's no, there's no pushback, right? Usually... Winning a video game, the value of winning in a video game is that there's some achievement. There's some sense of achievement that you've accomplished something. And frustration is what leads to a sense of accomplishment. So the problem 
with ET, you know, in a nutshell, is that ET committed the sin of too frequently disorienting the player, as opposed to simply frustrating. And the mechanism through which that happens is around the pits. Okay, it's the idea that you can fall too easily into the pits, particularly when you don't intend to. And uh, the truth is, if I would have spent another six or seven hours, probably, with that game, I probably could have really relieved some of the major frustrations. I mean, the, the things that I would do is fix it so when you, when you come out of a pit, you get to a safe place and you're clear and safe in the moment, you can't automatically fall back in. Uh, the other change I would make is that whenever you enter a screen, you can't automatically fall into a bed, which happens sometimes, because those are the things that are disoriented. You know, you get a couple of screens flashing, and now you're back in the bottom of the pit, and you don't really know how you got there. That's the disorientation. I would make those two changes first, and I would be able to do that pretty quickly. And if I would have made those two changes... You know, what, would the, what are the ramifications? So E.T., instead of being one of the worst games of all time, would probably go down as a good game or a reasonable game. And, uh, but the real upshot would be that we wouldn't be talking about it right now. It would be another <laughs> forgotten piece of 2600 lore, you know, like many other, you know, games that were okay. I wonder if the concept was maybe, you know, a bit, a bit ahead of its time as well, because, you know, around that time, like 82, it was, everything was like space shooters, really, wasn't it? And Pac-Man games. Uh, they were. They were typically space shooters, but not exclusively. Hmm. Some of them were real Earth shooters, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like combat. But uh, it, was, it was different. I don't think it was so different because of the framing about the movie. I think the thing that was really different about it was, for one thing, if you think about it, E.T. is the first game you play in three-dimensional space, right? It's one of the first games that comes out where you're playing on a cube. You're playing on a three-dimensional surface, and you, you have to have some concept of where you are in the world while you're playing. And that was unusual. And uh, the, the thing that really hurt it was, like, it's the lack of a tuning phase. See, most games you spend, you know, 20, 30, maybe 40% of your time implementing the base, getting to first playable. So first playable, you know, first playable is a term we use in game development that refers, you know, with the game, when you're going to make a game, you start off with the design. You come up with the design for what you think the game is going to be. And then you create the basic rules and the characters and basic play. And then you get to a place that's called first playable. And first playable is the first time all the basic rules and function of the game are in place. It could have, like, just, you know, very plain graphics and nothing special visually. But the objects are all there, they're all represented, and they move in a relatively representational way, and the rules of the game are implemented. So you can begin to have the play experience. That's called first playable. And that usually, like I said, that's going to occur typically anywhere from 25 to 40% at typical schedule. And from then on, it's all about tuning and tweaking and dressing up and enhancing. And so what I like to say is that one of the problems with ET is that I realized 100% of my design concept. And that may sound like an odd thing to say. But what I mean is that in most game developments, you start off with a concept, and as you, 
as the development goes on, you get farther and farther away from your design concept because you're improving on it. You're doing things that are no longer really representative of the design concept. You're doing things that are better, right? They're improving. And, the pro and that's the tuning phase. The tuning phase is where the game goes from first playable to a far better game, hopefully. In a successful development, the game is always getting better until it's released. So E.T., like I say, the problem with E.T. is that I realized 100% of my design concept because I didn't have time for tuning. So I had to try and come up with a design concept that when I get it done, it'll be okay and it'll play well because I could only, in five weeks, just getting to first playable in five weeks is pretty impressive, and I had to have a done game in five weeks. So I essentially released my first playable with improved graphics. Every one of my games was groundbreaking in some way. And then when we finally got to uh, the dig in Alamogordo, New Mexico, all those years later, E.T. also became a groundbreaking game, <laughs> though in a very different sense. Did you feel you were used as kind of a scapegoat uh, for the American video games crash? Uh, you know, when you're Jewish, you're used to being scapegoated. Ah! <laughs> I have to say, uh, there's two there's two kinds of thought, schools of thought about that. It's an odd thing when a lot of, not everybody has ever had the experience of being part of a story and seeing it develop. When you've had the chance to be firsthand participant or firsthand aware of an actual news story, and then to see the news story covered and how it evolves and develops, you realize the difference between the story that's being presented and the reality. So I always saw the reality of what was going on and the idea that, you know, ET destroyed the industry and stuff was ridiculous. You know, it's just, I knew that wasn't true. There's no one single game that has the power to do that. You know, first of all, the amount of money they spent for ET wasn't really just for ET. That was to buy Spielberg. That's why they spent so much money on it. Right? It wasn't about making money on that card. It was about getting Steven Spielberg in the Warner label and doing that. And that was a very successful bid. But even if, even if there was zero return, and let's say uh, they spent $22 million on the game, and let's say they spent another $50 million on uh, uh, producing the game, and let's say they never got a penny for selling any of them. Okay. Let's just, just assume that for a moment. Mm -hmm. So let's say they spent $75 million and didn't get a penny back. Okay, well, their sales at that point were over a billion a year. So that doesn't make much sense, does it? <laughs> it's like if a company is doing hundreds of millions to a billion a year in sales, losing $75 million is a bummer, but... Logically, it's not going to kill the industry. It's a big hit, but it's not so, destructive, you know. It's a hit, but it's not, you know, game over, so to speak. You know, it's not <laughs> it. I mean, there was a lot more involved in what really destroyed the video game industry. In my opinion, the thing that killed the video game industry when it did, the thing that caused the lull and the crash, was the lack of understanding it was the first development cycle it was the first it was the first product cycle for a real home console which means nobody knew what to do with it there's uh there was a guy i worked with at atari program and what he used to say is you know the definition of state-of-the-art 
He goes, state-of-the-art means when it's broke, nobody knows how to fix it. And that's kind of the story of Atari, right? Because Atari was something, it was like a tiger that they grabbed by the tail, and it was taking off because this was the beginning of really introducing not just video games, but interactive television to the world. And that was a huge phenomenon that nobody really appreciated how huge that was. And so what they think, you know, nowadays when you release a base unit, there's two very important things that you do, right? One is you have license protection so other people can't just throw crap on your system and do whatever. You control who, what does and doesn't get released on your unit, right? And the other thing you do is as soon as you release your base unit, you start designing your next generation base unit now, okay? Because you know it's going to take you a few years to put that together, and about the time that thing's ready to pop, you're running out of gas on your previous one, and you're ready to keep the thing rolling with the next unit, okay? Atari did neither of those things. Nobody knew these were things to do, right? It was the first video game system. So it was a cash cow. It was an incredible cash cow. It was literally the goose that laid the golden egg. And all they could do was collect the eggs. And the people you had running the show, after Nolan leaves, they don't know anything about what's going on with the development of the system and stuff. All they know is they showed up, did more advertising, and holy crap, look at how brilliant this was, because now the thing is making tons of money, right? Advertising is helpful, and advertising is good, but there are plenty of products that get lots of advertising and still don't go anywhere. Video games was something that was going to take off anyway because it was compelling new technology that people were really drawn to, but nobody realized how big it was going to be right away. And it fell apart because the kinds of business practices that Atari had always used. Atari used some, uh, as I understand it, some very cutthroat business practices on their way up, and so they made a lot of enemies. And when you make a lot of enemies on your way up, those people can't wait to step on you when you're on your way back down. And so everybody who could did. <laughs> it was like, and that's one of the reasons that Atari, which had been the fastest growing company in American history, became the fastest falling company in American history. You know, it did all that in the space of a few years. It was really an amazing meteoric rise and fall. Well, how chatting to you now, I mean, obviously, you know, we've, we've kind of talked about, you know, this title that E.T.'s given, like, you know, the worst video game in history. I mean, it sounds like you've got a good sense of humor about it and you can kind of laugh about it now. But was there ever a time where that kind of got to you a little bit and you were like, you know, got upset by it? Uh, no. You know, when you see a news story and you're a part of it and you realize the difference between the reality and what's going on. When people started talking about E.T. as the worst game of all time, I realized I know what it was. I knew what E.T. was. I knew what I had achieved. And so for me, I, I've never argued with a player. I would never tell a player a game is better than they feel about it or worse. You know, because what a player feels about a game is real. And that's true. And a lot of people didn't like the game. But I never felt like it was a horrible game because I knew what a success it was to deliver what I had delivered in the time frame that I did. Okay, so there was, there was never, a, even though a lot of people didn't like it, I knew they didn't understand the concept of the game. 
right? Most of the people who talked about ET had no idea of what developing a game is about or means or anything about time frames. They don't know, and they shouldn't, right? Players shouldn't care about what went into the development of a game. Players should only care about the game experience they have. And I can definitely understand why there were some aspects of the play experience of ET that were poor and were enough to push a lot of people away. Uh, the people who pushed through that and worked through it, uh, a lot of them found a very pleasant experience. I mean, ET for being the worst game of all time still sold even after returns over a million and a half units. That's not the biggest failure. <laughs> it did well. And there's ET fan clubs. There's people in the game who got into it. It wasn't a universally horrible game. But I can understand a lot of people getting frustrated by the pits and disoriented through the beginning of the play of the game and just blowing it off and giving up on it. And that's a horrible game experience. Were you aware of any um, kind of rumors about Atari burying products in the desert or anything like that at the time? I had never heard anything about that. When that started to show up, I totally doubted it. I never believed it. I never believed that because it didn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense for a company that's in dire financial straits to spend extra money to try and get rid of product that is inherently worthless, right? That just seems like an absurdly stupid thing to do. Why would you bother with that? Why not cannibalize the inventory, re, you know, recover what materials you can and make whatever else you're going to make? But the idea of actually spending money to keep worthless product from getting for penetrating the market that's there's something flawed about that so it never made any sense but you know here's the thing when you start expecting things to make sense you're really losing touch with atari because <laughs> atari didn't make sense nothing was sensible at atari and that was one of the things that made atari so beautiful and so amazing right because it didn't make sense. It didn't have to make sense. You didn't want it to make sense. You wanted it to be this outrageous, crazy Roman excess of an orgy of development. And that's what it was. And when it stopped being that, everything fell apart. Well, those landfill rumors, it was, like, it was like an urban legend for about 30 years, really, wasn't it? And then, obviously, uh, Microsoft and Major Nelson did that you know, dig where they actually uncovered the cartridges. It must have been a bit surreal seeing people right. like lining up to, you know, treating the your, your buried games as like treasure, pretty much. It was unbelievable. I thought the movie Atari Game Over really did a great job of delivering that experience. I mean, for me personally, like I never believed it. Hmm. I had never believed that that stuff was going to be in the desert. And then there came a day where I, I mean, picture standing in the middle of a desert in a in a sandstorm literally seeing my past being dug up. Okay. That was, that was surreal in a, in a tremendous way. And, uh, it was strange just arriving that day when we were arriving at the, uh, cause it was basically a junkyard, right? It was a city dump. And when I got there, it turned out there was just people waiting, you know, what's the last time you saw, literally hundreds of people standing in line waiting to get into a dump. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen that before. <laughs> I certainly hadn't. And I, that just told me that something was up today. This is an interesting thing. And as the day wore on and the sandstorm got very intense and people were braving, braving, you know, the elements and really fighting against all this, it was really kind of a brutal 
experience, but on some level, you know, there was, there was, but there was a tremendous excitement. There was an energy in the crowd that was really palpable. And I was really, I was, I was never so anxious to be wrong in my life because I knew that this whole thing works better if they find something than if they don't find anything. But I really didn't think it was going to be there. And then when it came up and you saw the stuff, it was very emotionally overwhelming for me because they, uh, I was suddenly struck with a realization. Those are five very, very tough weeks that I really poured myself into. And this was something that I had done over 30 years ago. And when I saw all these people so excited, this giant crowd all pushing up and around to see what's going on and experience this thing, and I realized this thing I did with 8K of code 30 years ago is still generating excitement and focus and anticipation and fun. And that was the whole point, right? The whole point of doing the games is to create a fun experience for people. That's what I thought. And I realized this thing that I did, it's still working. It may not have been in the way anybody intended you know, from, from back then, but it was still creating uh, real excitement and joy for people all these years later. Well, I, was and I was so proud to have been at the center of that. It was overwhelming. Well, I was at a video games museum in Rome last year, and they even had, you know, some of your ET cartridges with the soil and everything, like, on display in the middle. It was at the main exhibition. It's like, I bet you never thought that would happen, wow. you know. It's like, it's crazy, isn't it, that all around the world that's become such a big story. All I could say is, bellissima! <laughs> <laughs> and it must have been fantastic meeting people like Ernest Klein, who are kind of totally wrapped up in that world of early gaming and, you know just being a kind of icon to those people. Uh, Ernie Klein's a very cool dude. Very cool dude. I was very uh, pleased to have the chance to meet him. And, it, yeah, it's amazing. It's Actually, it's very interesting if you look at, if you look at the history of the E.T. story and then the paths that have recrossed going through Atari Game Over. And then, you know, Ernie Klein, of course, who wrote Ready Player One, which is a movie. So E.T., so Spielberg does E.T., I do the video game, and then the years pass, okay? And then there's this documentary that's being done that's directed by Zach Penn featuring me and Ernie Klein, and there's just like one little clip of Spielberg in it. But it's interesting because Spielberg, turns out, is the one who's directing Ready Player One, which Ernie Klein wrote, which wrote the novel, and Zach Penn wrote the screenplay for it. So all of these paths come back and cross again through the Atari Game Over experience into Ready Player One. So the only thing that was missing, and I'm still sorry about that, was that I couldn't get a cameo in Ready Player One. I would have loved to, but my games probably do. And so, the Easter eggs so, play a big part in that film as well, so... Exactly. And I know that you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark was featured in, uh, in the novel, so I'd imagine it'll appear in the movie. So I'll make my appearance that way. How did you feel when you eventually sat down and watched the film and kind of saw all the kind words by people like Nolan Bushnell and previous colleagues? Uh, I have to tell you, the first time I ever saw the film was at Comic-Con in, uh, I think it was like... Uh, August, July or August of uh, 14. 
and I was sitting next to Nolan Bushnell, <laughs> watching the movie with him. And a lot of the people who had made the movie and who were in the movie were present. And I was sitting there, and I, ha I had a lot of uh, trepidation leading up to it, because I had done like about eight hours of interviews with Zach Penn for this movie. And I don't know if you know much about Zach Penn's filmmaking background, but the movies that he's made himself uh, are mostly mockumentaries, right? They're, they're things that lampoon stuff and totally make fun and, and poke fun at, uh, at things. And I thought, I gave him a lot of really intense material. And if he's going to use that to make fun of me, he's going to really be able to do a job on me. <laughs> if that's what he wants to do. And he's very good at that. And I thought, hmm, you know, I hope I don't turn out to be ridiculous. But as we got closer to the screening and I met some of the other people who had worked on the film behind the scenes or had seen cuts of it and stuff, and they were all saying to me, you're going to be very happy with this film. <laughs> you're going to really like it. So I thought, okay, well, that's nice. And then, uh, but but I didn't get to see I didn't get to see any rushes, any early cuts or nothing. So this was my first time seeing a full cut of the film, and uh, it was awesome. It was just awesome. It was really cool. I mean, I I have really cultivated a sense of humor, and I have done a lot of things to deal with this idea of the worst game of all time. I never really felt I needed to be vindicated for it, but. I have to say, after watching that film, I was overwhelmed with a feeling of vindication, something I didn't even really anticipate, and it was just very moving, and then at the end of the movie, I'd say I almost get emotional thinking about it, uh, they started introducing some of the people uh, who were in the movie who were there, and people would clap for them, and it was very nice, and they introduced Nolan, and people clapped for Nolan, and then they introduced me. And I stood up and I got like a full minute standing ovation from the crowd. And it was, uh, that was an amazing moment in my life. I don't think I will ever forget. And if there was ever, there was ever a time or a way that I felt really bad about E.T. and anything that went on, all of that melted in that moment. It was all gone. That was a healing, wonderful, fabulous ray of light in my life. Just a great moment. And I really felt appreciated for what had really gone on. So that was cool. For the so-called worst game ever made, the fact that people were actually digging it up out of a rubbish dump and then selling it on eBay for like, you know, $2,000 <laughs> 30 years later, that's kind of vindication as well, I guess. It's true. It's true. <laughs> well, the other thing is, you know, one of the ways that I always looked at games, I mean, I, I have a different way of looking at stuff from most people. I've come to learn that over time. And... Uh, well, one of the ways I always looked at games was not a program and not even really a game so much. I always looked at it as a piece of broadcast media. That's the way I looked at games. And, uh, and like I always say, you know, with, with broadcast, you guys are in broadcast media, right? You know, so, you know, what's the goal of media when you put media out, right? You want to generate attention, maybe some insight or enlightenment. And, uh, and ideally some social discourse. You'd like people to really discuss it or have it create, you know, some sort of thought or, you know, idea exchange. I really feel like I achieved that with E.T., more so than any of my other games, right? This is a game. How many 2,600 games are we still talking about today? You know, not many. And this one is still generating interest and focus and satisfaction and so as a piece of broadcast media for it to still be alive 
and and generating talk and interest over 30 years later, uh, I see that as a tremendous accomplishment. Well, nowadays you're a, a psychiatrist to Silicon Valley. Uh, do you think your experience as... Oh, a psychotherapist. A psychotherapist. Do you think your experiences in the world of gaming kind of give you a, a good edge? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because for one thing, Atari was a hotbed of mental illness. I can promise you that. <laughs> and so it was great training for it. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I've come to the point of view that on some levels, maybe one of the reasons I became a therapist was to address some of the trauma and depression that I had created with the ET game. And so maybe I'm giving a little something back. Or maybe I was just creating a market for myself later on. You never know. <laughs> but... Uh, the great thing about being a psychotherapist is that everything, every intense experience in your life comes into play. So now, because of my experience at Atari, I can deal with people who have had flashes of popularity and have had to deal with that, people who have done great things and had it been exposed to tremendous success, people who have failed in enormous ways and learned to deal with that. Uh, people who have had very intense workplaces that disturb their life, you know, their home life, their social life. Uh, and you see a lot of that in Silicon Valley. So it's given me a tremendous amount of insight into those mechanisms and how those things come into play in your life and how difficult they can be and how you address them. So it's, it's, it's absolutely bolstered my abilities as a therapist now. Well, you're working on a book as well at the moment. I am. Right now, I am working on a book uh, that I don't know what the title's going to be yet exactly, but it might be. I, the working title is Making History by Killing an Industry. And it's going to be, uh, it's a book about Atari, my experiences at Atari and ET and my, you know, some of these ideas and an elaboration of my thoughts of what really happened in the game crash and what really went on inside Atari. You know, my experience with Yars and Raiders and ET, working with Steven Spielberg and a lot of very notable people from that time. Just having an incredible experience with a bunch of incredible people. It was uh, really an amazing, amazing time of life. I don't think anybody who was at Atari at that time was not incredibly deeply affected uh, in their life by that experience. Some positively, some negatively. But I don't think anybody came away neutral on the whole thing. It was the kind of thing that takes your life over in a, in a really delightful but at times tremendously difficult way it's just an unbelievable experience and i'm hoping that i could share that in a way that people will really get it and if i do and they can have any kind of experience like that that should be a very compelling book well ravi and i have been video game players you know all of our lives howard so it's you know having someone on our show who's you know responsible for some of the most infamous games in history it's been a pleasure getting your stories thank you so much for coming on well thanks for having me it was really a pleasure talking with you and if people want to keep up to date with the book um how can they find out more uh you can always find what you want from my website which is hswarshaw.com i have uh, several books available there you can find me on linkedin uh, is Howard Scott Warshaw, and uh, you can also go to onceuponatari.com. Once Upon Atari, by the way, is the documentary that I did uh, that was done entirely by people from Atari about what it was really like to be a game engineer there. It's the only authentic piece of media about what it was really like to work at Atari ever produced. So at least that's what I've heard people say. And uh, so all of these things are available through onceuponatari.com or through hswarshaw.com. 
I'm not a hard person to find online. Just Google me and away you go. But uh, thank you so much for having me.